0: From coast to coast, women grow up with their bodies being watched and, almost without fail, learning to watch their own bodies. This self-surveillance begins young, and for many women feels impossible to stop. It permeates our relationships and decisions, negatively impacts our physical well-being, mental health, and overall quality of life. The Body Myth Podcast explores how we got here why our size and shape have nothing to do with happiness, and what we can do to find body peace. I'm Ronit Plank, and I'm your host for the Body Myth Podcast. Let's get off of this weight and body image roller coaster together. Welcome to episode 11 of The Body Myth. At the start of episode 10, I shared answers to the survey I conducted to the question, if you have ever wanted to lose weight, what did you want that weighing less would get you? And today I would like to share answers to question 13, if you have ever lost a goal amount of weight, did it help you stop thinking of your body in a critical way or give you peace of mind? And here are some of the selected answers to that. No. I was obsessed with staying at the goal weight. If anything, it made me obsess more. I felt good about myself, proud of how I looked. Nope. Yes, several times. It was good, yes, but a struggle. I was less critical, but the upkeep and exercise would sometimes teeter on obsessive. Yes, slightly. The negative self-talk persisted, consistently comparing myself to others skinnier than I. But shopping for outdoor hiking clothes was easier, finding all clothing that fit correctly was easier, and made shopping more enjoyable and less anxiety and shame inducing. Not really. I ended up dropping 35 pounds in 2020, but it was all due to stress. So the peace of mind didn't come and I'm constantly afraid I'll put the weight back on. I felt good about myself, proud of how I looked. No. No, came close, but didn't quite get there. Yes, but there was that niggling thought in the back of my head that I could still improve and stressing that I was going to put it all back on eventually. Never really lost a goal amount of weight. Yes. Yes, it did temporarily. Yes. Yes, peace of mind. I have done so many times, and nope. It did make me feel less critical of my body, But I missed my favorite foods. My set point is not at the weight that BMI charts recommend. Nope. Yes. I got very close, and no, I did not, and no, it didn't. Yes, 100% absolutely. I did gain some confidence when I lost 7 pounds on Weight Watchers back in the fall. It was helpful to make smarter choices and not just eat mindlessly. My goal was 20 and I didn't come anywhere near it, but it was interesting to consider this a skill I could learn. Yes. I felt freer. Yes, briefly. Nope. No. Yes, but then there is always maintenance, so it is never done. Yes, but the weight always comes back too quickly for me to know whether I would also be critical if it didn't. I lost one full size in 2016 and it made me feel great. Yes, yes, I hit a goal weight and I felt accomplished and proud. Yes, I have, and no, it did not stop the critical self-talk or give me peace of mind. One drop took me from very uncomfortable to where I am now, a drop of about 75 pounds that still has me over 200. That actually felt good, and I felt good about it. Of course, I did screw up my health a little more with the way that happened. Somewhat. I have rarely thought about weight goals. No. Thank you very much for sharing those answers and for offering some perspective on what your experience has been. In the coming episodes, I have about four or five more questions to the survey that I'm going to share answers for, and they continue to intrigue me, and they help me understand what other women are going through and what they've experienced, and I am just so grateful for them. Among the questions I'm going to share answers for are, do you feel your eating has ever become disordered in pursuit of changing your body? Do you feel you see your body accurately? What does being slim or thin mean to you? And when you feel confident about your body, what do you like about it? And now it's time for episode 11's guest. Today, my guest is Lisa Cohn. Lisa is the award-winning author of To The Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence, and The Power of Thoughtful Leadership. She's an accomplished leadership consultant, executive coach, and keynote speaker with a strong business background and creative approach. Lisa earned her BA in psychology from Cornell University and her MBA from Columbia University's executive program. She has taught as an adjunct professor at Columbia University and New York University's Stern School of Business, and she brings to others the tools, mind shifts, and practices she's found that have helped her heal and thrive, as well as the hope and forgiveness she's been blessed to let into her life. Lisa will always tell you that she is a native New Yorker, but she currently lives in Pennsylvania welcome lisa thank you Ronit. i just it makes me
1: laugh <laughs> that i put that at the end of my bio so if anyone heard me
0: giggling i was <laughs> well i kind of tell everyone i'm a native new yorker too even though i kind of had a, a couple of stops along the way and i don't live there anymore but i think i still have my my new york wings like i think i still count, you know, as a New Yorker.
1: I think you do.
0: Yeah. yeah. So uh, I want to thank you for being my guest. We have been in touch for a while on and off and we are making this happen. And I'm really happy that I get to learn a little bit more of your story and share what's been your journey with your weight and body and eating, as well as a little bit of background into your childhood and in the setting for, you know, when this all occurred. So can you talk a little bit about how your childhood was so different? (laughs) Let's see. A little bit (laughs) of that yes, like where to begin. Where to begin.
1: (laughs) So the the way I begin, I always begin with the, the line I use to describe my childhood is the best seats I ever had at Madison Square Garden which is a huge indoor sports and concert arena in New York City. The best mm-hmm. seats I ever had there were at my mother's wedding because mm-hmm. my mom got married on July 1st, 1982, along with 2,074 other couples because I grew up in the Unification Church, the Moonies, the cult of all cults in the American Age of cults. and My mom got married and I had floor seats for that and it was a waste. And On the other hand, the best cocaine I ever had was for my father's friend, the judge. And... I've been questioned so I do say yes he really was a judge and I once had a book reading for my memoir in New York City at back home in New York City and my high school boyfriend is in the back of the room and you can hear him go damn it was really good cocaine so, <laughs> so that was that was like the two contrasting either one is a little bit weird quite unique aspects of my childhood. I've only met my brother who has exactly the same kind of situation, and it's brought me to where I am
0: today. Mm -hmm. And so when you were growing up in the Unification Church, who did you live with primarily?
1: So we were this really weird anomaly in that, you know, my parents, my parents were hippies. They got, got pregnant, got married, had my brother, had me split. And we were living with my mom, and when my mom, when she found the church soon thereafter, she she moved into the church. She left us. She literally sat us down and said, I think I need to be more involved. What do the two of you think we I should do? And we said, you should leave. Oh,
0: wait, how old were you? <laughs> 11 mm.
1: and 12. 11 mm. and 12 at the time when we told her to move out. And <laughs> So, um, you know, caring for my grandfather, doing the shopping, cooking, cleaning, running everything, being the perfect little everything, which ties into this what we're talking about today. And mm-hmm. then soon thereafter, my grandfather, he was put in the psychiatric ward of the local hospital, and we were kind of shuffled around for a while. And then my dad, who lived in the East Village uh, before it was cool in New York City when it was only seedy, I like to say a life of sex, drugs, and squalor, came and got us, and we moved in with him in New York City's East Village. So I, I spent my like my physical life, Monday through Friday, were with my dad, living this... Crazy lifestyle that he was living, living with him, and then my heart and soul and weekends and holidays and any time I could were up in you know the church centers and church estates and church you know properties and anywhere I could just get away from get away from living with Satan uh, and go back mm-hmm. to the Messiah, which is how how it was split in our brains at the time.
0: A quick question about your father: Was he a believer at all?
1: No, he he knew that moon was all the things I now know Moon to be, you know, a mm-hmm. liar, a fake, you know, a fake religion. Of, mm-hmm. You know, he knew that we were, you know, caught, literally caught, wrapped in in the confines of this cold. I will say to his credit, he never said a bad word about it once, mm-hmm. about it or my mother, he all his friends did, but he clearly did not because he knew that if he ever did badmouth Moon, or the church or my mother, he would lose us even more. But no, mm-hmm. he was, so I literally, like we literally, we just went back and forth from these two crazy, contrasting worlds. And just recently I said to my brother, how do we go back and forth? Like, how do we live these two lives? Mm. And he says to me, I don't know. I wasn't there. So that's kind of how we did it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And so your mother, it sounds like you became very enamored of the church as well, that you yes. bought in and you really liked it. Yes. And so that was your happy, soulful place. That, uh, until it wasn't, yes. So
1: I always try to explain to people that the church was a haven to us by the time we got there. You know, my mom started wearing a bra and stopped cursing and there was more structure and there were rules and she was happier. And so it, and there was, you know, hundreds of brothers and sisters of church members who doted on us and loved us. And and I'll be very clear, right? There is no more intoxicating drug than having a Messiah. It is the mm-hmm. most powerful belief system ever like when you i always say as human animals we crave certainty purpose and community Mm -hmm. and the cult or extreme belief gives us absolute certainty purpose beyond that we'll never have again and a community you will never replicate as long Mm -hmm. as you don't leave Mm -hmm. so it was it was wonderful I mean, it was not, right? In retrospect, Uh but even when people read my memoir, they say, you don't make the church sound so bad. And I'm like, it it didn't feel bad at the time. I literally reconnected with my best friend from sixth grade and she said, I used to love when you would take me in there for the weekend.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, in a way it seems, you know, on the face of it, very safe and supportive and there's no real danger. You're in an enclosed community. And I mean, I grew up on a kibbutz for a while, so I get it. And I do, I wanna circle back to something I should have asked you a couple of minutes ago, which is why were you interested or, you know, supporting your mom to go off to the church when she said, I think I need to go there. What were you thinking as a, you know, a very young teenager or preteen that would make you tell your mom to go? So when you believe that fervently and you know that moon is the Messiah and
1: you know that God's heart has been broken by humankind for 6,000 years, And that, you know, we need to save the world and suffer. It's called paying indemnity, sufferings to pay for the sins of your ancestors. And so your descendants don't have to suffer. And you need to sacrifice and fight with your life and die if you must in order to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth for moon, the Messiah, and God. When your mother says, I think I need to be more involved in the church, there is no other option than absolutely you should. Mm -hmm. There's There's no other choice.
0: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like she was already involved, and you were exposed to the church by the time she said, yeah, "I need to go." She had, okay, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I Absolutely, understand. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, she, uh,
1: yeah. The, the story goes, she so she went to hear Moon speak in January of 1974, and came back enthralled. This is amazing. He's amazing, and not a lot happened for a couple months, and then. Church members convinced her to go up to Barrytown, New York, where they have a ch- had a huge church indoctrination center. And she went mm-hmm. up for the weekend and came back and went up for a week and came back and went up for another couple of weeks and came back and basically spent the summer up there. Mm. And one weekend she took us. We kept saying, take us, take us. So she took us up. And, you know, we pull up to the big building. We go into the huge gymnasium and all the sisters, the women are on the floor on the right side of the room and all the. The brothers, the men, are on the floor on the left side of the rim. and within moments, Moon, would sit, Moon walks in and starts speaking through his interpreter, and and that was it. After that mm-hmm. moment, it, you know, my mom said this is the Messiah; people bow to him. Mm-hmm. He was, and so yeah, I was mm-hmm. an absolute fervent. I was an absolute fervent believer. I also happened to be best friends with his kid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a whole other level of the mm-hmm. story, but um, yeah, I. I knew. People say, "Well, why did you believe that?" I'm like, "Well, why did why do you believe in Judaism when you raised Jewish, and why do you believe mm-hmm. in Catholicism when you raised Catholic? Like, mm-hmm. when the adults around you say this is true, you know it to be true, and it mm-hmm. was it was that simple. It mm-hmm. was that simple. And again, yeah. it was safer than life had been with my mother, and life was with my father, when it was just scary in all their mm-hmm.
0: crazy yeah. ways. So yeah." I I remember something in your book about you chewing lots of um, small (laughs) bites, so somewhat early in the book. I believe it's your mom who says to get, and tell me if I've got this right, to get all the nutrients out of your food, you have to chew and chew and chew and chew. And so you and your brother are just chewing to bits, you know, to tiny, tiny, tiny pieces, everything you're eating. And I wonder, do you feel like this had any part to play in what happened with you and food later?
1: So my mom went through a macrobiotic phase before the church where basically what we ate was seaweed, beans, and brown rice. And that included the chew 100 times, you need to chew 100 times, and it was the nutrients, but it was also higher higher spirituality, Mm -hmm. Um, you know? And so, you know, this, you know, we would bring Brown, you know, bean patties to school for lunch, right? Mm In the 70s, Mm -hmm. people thought we were weird, and we would go visit my father, and my brother would eat two bags of Chips Ahoy cookies and two bottles Mm -hmm. of root beer for breakfast, right? To Mm -hmm. put up his sugar content. So it was, it was not, it was not great, and my mom. You know has since admitted that she cooked really poorly in a macrobiotic way but so when yeah so i did you know long story short one of the things that happened after i left the church is i did stop eating um and i did mm-hmm. suffer from anorexia and i do remember turning to my mom and saying i bet my food issues first come from that because i i mean i think one my anorexia was a way to, to punish and kill myself for leaving the church and mm-hmm. i also know it's got a hell of a lot to do with control right it's the only thing i could like control but Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure all of that did manage to add to my food issues, the craziness Mm. my mom did about food and how we ate and what we ate and all of that. Yeah.
0: Did your anorexia, which I do want to dive into here, do you feel that it was body image and critical thinking about yourself issues that led you to it, or that it was this other, this loss that led you to it?
1: So, long story short, for a variety of reasons, I started to pull away from the church when I, like the end of high school and beginning of college.
0: And people can and, read your book. I mean, we'll definitely link to it in the show notes. Yes, but if you want the full a, story, definitely read story. the book.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: a whole soap opera of a story,
1: including being banished by the Messiah. So, I, I went off to college and I. I went off to college, determined that I would not leave the church. But I did slowly. And I, my brother says I never left; I just slowly pulled away.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, you know, one of the things I did to myself after that was again stop eating. And and what actually happened was I had a boyfriend, which is the whole huge sin in the church, which is partly what left me away. In my my second year of college, I lost my virginity to this said boyfriend, and I stopped eating after that. So when i look back now i clearly see one the need to self punish for for mm-hmm. how sinful and awful i was i also clearly i mean if there's alcoholism and addiction all over the dad side of my family right and anorexia is very linked to being mm-hmm. a child of an alcoholic, so there's all those control issues as well and i also i mean i'm i'm not in any way heavy now and i was about 30 pounds less then and i remember you know, hitting 82 pounds and stepping on the scale and being like excited um, Mm -hmm. that it was so low, but looking at myself in the mirror and thinking I still was too fat, Mm -hmm. right? And so Mm -hmm. so I think, I do not think it started from body issues because I really was just fine with everything about,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. well, on one hand, I was just fine with everything about my body, but on the other hand, You know, many years later, I discovered this probably molestation at a young age and a lot of not so good things happened to me in the church. And so there really there are a lot of dissociation and body Mm -hmm. issues. Absolutely. But Mm -hmm. I never thought about weight at all until I had sex with my boyfriend Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: just found a way to start not eating anymore.
0: So were you feeling the shame of having had sex because of what you knew the stigma was for that in the church caused you to start taking it out on your body? Not consciously. Right. But it wasn't that yeah. the experience with your boyfriend on, on the surface was a bad one?
1: No, it was. Right, you know, right. He was, mm-hmm. you know, obnoxious. He still is obnoxious. But no, it was, it was, <laughs> no, it was right. great. It was my first right. love. It was my first love. Like we were thrown into it hard because of my religious upbringing. You know, I remember thinking, I really remember like waking up that morning and being like, oh, my God, is there like a scarlet A on me? Does everybody know?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. not really
1: being conscious about it at all. But I just, I just, I just stopped eating.
0: Well, it seems like it went to work on you. All those beliefs and everything that you'd been raised in just started working on you. And did anyone who cared about you or who was close to you, point out to you that, you know, you, you were changing or c- express concern about how you were not eating?
1: Yeah, it became very clear that I was not eating. And actually, what it ended up doing was decimating a lot of relationships, right? So I had a very my best friend from my first year of college. And when I was rooming with my second year of college, you know, we split up after that because I was, you know, I was not eating, I was miserable. My boyfriend and I split up after that. You know, I remember my mom you know, coming up to visit me once. That's how amazing it, you know, that's how bad I was because my mm. mom never visited and never showed up. And I remember my dad, I went home. I went home for, I was home for Christmas break. And my dad worked in this French restaurant that's in New York city. And he invited me in to like, say hi. And he was making brunch, or he was being served brunch. And he had this, he got me this great plate of food. And I think I ate the strawberries as the garnish and felt guilty about that. And that's mm-hmm. when my dad, my dad used to scream at me. In fact, what he used to do, like who I used to, this is when I also started doing a lot of cocaine. And then with my dad um, and with my dad's friend of Judge and I would, you know, my dad would get me extremely high on cocaine, which makes it really hard to eat. And then we'd go out to dinner and I wouldn't order or I wouldn't eat. And then my dad would yell at me for not eating. And I'm like, but I'm high, I can't eat. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> it was kind of, kind of crazy. Yeah.
0: Kind of crazy. So yeah. did you ever get to a point where you – were in serious physical jeopardy?
1: So I I don't know. Like I never ended up in inpatient counseling, right? I ended up in um, at Cornell. I ended up in outpatient counseling with uh, mm-hmm. probably with a grad student, you know, and it's my second year of college. I came up to college Amuni and I sat in this counselor's office and talked about why I wasn't eating or how I couldn't eat and I never mentioned the church once because I could, you know, I could not admit it to people because they would just talk badly about it. But I ended up in counseling and I ended up talking to a nurse who actually helped me start to eat again. I mean, a lot, I stopped having my period for a very long time. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm rather short. I never made five foot. I'm probably about 4'10 now. And I just remember thinking I would be long and lanky and I was just scrawny and short. But I never, like I never got to the point of hospitalization. There is, you know, I, you know, my, my freshman year when I first started leaving, I did almost, I was at Cornell, so I did almost jump off a bridge. My sophomore year, I stopped eating. My junior year is when I really did a lot of cocaine and, you know, got mildly addicted. I have this ability, I've had this ability to, Almost hit disaster and then kind of just miss it and start over again. So at some huh. point, I just started eating slowly again. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So then I can still s- have
1: the, the thoughts, right? The thought, the anorexic thinking, the critical
0: mm-hmm. or the
1: rigid. I call when I go into my rigidity, I call it anorexic thinking, and I went mm-hmm. for a long time you know, questioning food, not being able to eat food. I went with food issues for a very long time. In fact, when I got pregnant with my first child, my then therapist was thoroughly convinced that I would not be able to gain weight to to sustain a pregnancy. But I did. I gained 50 pounds.
0: (laughs) Well, so it's interesting to me because your body size and your shape and you know social media wasn't there and you weren't looking at magazines to try to shrink yourself nope. what you had was you know the the climate and the emotional environment you were in and the course of control of the church led you to have shame about your sexual act with your boyfriend and it's subconsciously i'm just summarizing subconsciously this went to work on you and all these forces kind of pushed you into this place where you were depriving yourself and it got very serious and it sounds like you made it out of there but you still are prone to having thoughts that you call rigid or anorexic, and when you have those thoughts, are those related to size or in terms of, like, are they related to your physical space in the world or a sense of gratification and fulfilling your needs? Is it both? Like, what is the sense of rigidity or deprivation there for?
1: So the way I describe my anorexic thinking, in 2013, I suffered a, a pretty debilitating bout of insomnia one of the best ways if not the best ways to cure to work through insomnia is with a cbt cognitive behavioral therapy uh-huh. specifically for insomnia cbti it's called um where you know like you go to bed at the same time you get up at the same time you limit uh-huh. things like you really train your body to sleep again and i would be like okay i'm gonna go to bed at 10 24 not ten twenty three not 1025 <laughs> right i'm going to get up like and i i mean that's what i mean that's when i call my anorexic mm, thinking like mm-hmm. it has to be exactly right it has to be this number not that number it mm-hmm. can't be here by a, you know by a second it, like and and then if it does like the terror and the anger and the self anger so it's it's about you know i haven't had quote unquote food issues right for a very long time i can eat i eat I eat very healthily, but I eat. I eat whatever. All that is absolutely true, but that the rigidity of thinking, right? To me, it was a disease of the body, but it was a disease of the mind. Right? Mm-hmm. It was a disease of you know one pound lighter. Like for a while, I I wouldn't even have a scale in the house, right? Mm-hmm. And then one of my kids started. No, I was a runner, and we weren't feeding my kid enough, and so we had to get a scale. We are like, "Are you gonna be okay?" Right, and I just would not get on the scale. Mm-hmm. Right, and then when I had the insomnia, I was actually I was losing so much weight. I was getting on the scale, going, "This is going down. This is not good because it's going down." Mm-hmm. You know, because all me would have been like, "Okay, you know, under yeah. hundred, yeah. okay, under 90. Right, it's a, yeah. it's an, it's not, it's an addiction. Mm-hmm. It was. You know, it's an, it's an addiction.
0: So how do you hold yourself accountable and and how do you keep your body safe in the midst of those kinds of thoughts or those potential patterns i have a hell of a lot of self-care practices mm-hmm. <laughs> and a hell of a lot of
1: therapy and a hell of a lot of recovery and i've been in a hell of a lot of 12-step programs so i have uh one thing I will say, very you know, very much about myself is I'm pretty self-aware at this point, so I can see this stuff. You know, when I mm-hmm. when I had the insomnia and that just really that is debilitating and it really messes with your brain. It's it's it was hard to see what I was doing, but on a general basis, I can see I can see my rigidity. I can recognize my rigidity, and I have a lot of self-soothing practices with meditation, with mm-hmm. you know, putting my hand on my heart as I. <laughs> I, uh, I skied into a tree a couple years ago, and amongst other things, broke my stern, and then my younger child said, "Now that you have a, an excuse to have your hand on your heart all day long, because mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of, you know breathing practices mm-hmm. and writing practices and soothing practices and journaling practices that mm-hmm. recognize, you know the, the anorexia is just one aspect of how I was affected and how I manifested those affects, right? Mm -hmm. Everything that happened to me and everything I did to myself afterwards. Um, So I use it for that and I use it, I use it for everything.
0: Mm -hmm. And, and what was it like for you to raise children knowing these areas that can be so vulnerable for you? Did you share with them as they got older, what you'd been through? Did any of them have any issues with eating enough? or anything you know, like
1: that? My older child used to say to me like that I was so good specifically about food. Like very early on, I was like, we're not talking about weight. We're not saying, oh, your chubby thighs to my children. Like you're not watching what they, like none of that. Like I was very careful that that kind of talk it wasn't gonna come from me and it didn't come from others, right? And I like, don't diet and I like, don't anything. Um, but what I, the one thing I used to say, I used to <laughs> I grab like one side of my belly and say this is the first child and the other side of my belly and say this is the second child. And this is why I love them, right? (laughs) Because I was pregnant with these two children and I gave birth to them and I was extremely lucky to do that. So neither one they've definitely gotten scars and anxieties and stuff from me, right? That you know, it's generational trauma, you cannot you can't keep your, it's epigenetics, even if it's in our DNA. We can't necessarily keep our trauma from affecting our children, unfortunately. Yeah. But they haven't gotten that one so far that I can tell, which, which is really great. And as far as my story, you know, I was very clear that they did not need to know my story. I think the age we arbitrarily picked was 16. And mm-hmm. then I think it was actually about 15 for each one of them,
0: the mm-hmm. older and my
1: younger, that something happened and they were like, okay, I either like, okay, I have to tell you now or okay. Tell me now, and so you mm-hmm. know they learned at that point. You know the stories of what happened, and you know what happened to me, what their grandparents did, you know mm-hmm. around me and to me and stuff. So, yeah. So yeah. now they all both know.
0: Yeah, and you know, I was you know reading your bio and and seeing all that you've accomplished. I mean, I'm sure you hear this a lot, but um, I think it's worth repeating. <laughs> Tell me, I mean, please, please crow a little bit here. I mean, you've accomplished so much. And you you have all these, these tools that you use, but you're also helping so many people. You're a speaker, you're a writer, you have a degree in psychology. So what do you attribute your ability to accomplish so much to? Well,
1: <laughs> um, you know, one of the ways I describe myself, you know, or the effects of my childhood, good and bad, is that if you put something in front of me, I will do it. I will do it extremely well, and I will do it extremely well, even if it drives me into the ground. So I am definitely, I have a very strong, powerful drive to keep going. And um, I do, I own a leadership consulting and executive coaching firm. And even since my memoir came out in 2018, now I literally use my story and every cracky, wacky thing that happened to me (laughs) in my corporate work with C-suite leaders, but... I, you know, and when my memoir came out, right, the fact that if telling my story, the fact that telling my story has helped other people heal from their own pain and find their own way and develop their own practices, that is such a gift to me that it keeps me always going. But I, I don't I don't, I don't realize, like, you know, one of the things I do know from the, you know, the coaching and executive work I do is that when something comes natural to us, we don't think anything of it. Mm -hmm. It's the things we can't do that we think are a big deal. And so people will say to me, like, I don't know how you're handling everything right now. And I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) You know, you just, (laughs) the next thing and I do the next thing. And yeah, I had a podcast and yeah, I had a three hour interview on Thursday. And then, yeah, I went to take care of my dad who's in a nursing home. And yeah, then I, mm-hmm. you know, work with this client in the C-suite meet over there. And I just, I, it's a gift or whatever that yeah. I just keep going. But I, but again, it fuels my heart. You know, I had to learn a lot of, I had to unwire a lot of things and rewire a lot of things in order to be okay. Mm-hmm. And if I, when I get to share those with people and they get their own glimpses of how they can be happier and healthier, then that just keeps me going, but I'm also uh-huh. learning to slow down. Right, my biggest, my biggest, you know, <laughs> there's been a lot going on in my personal life, and I always say, you know, it's funny when like clients and former clients and strangers you've met on LinkedIn, and all of a sudden they're all like, "Are you practicing what you're preaching? Are you slowing down? <laughs> Are you taking care of yourself?
0: <laughs> Are you doing what you're you like? Tell please, us to do? <laughs> please stop doing the things that I taught you when it comes to me." Yeah, it's funny, you, you remind me of what my father has told me over time too, which is people, and I'll paraphrase, and it's pretty much what you said, which is people often shy away from what they're so good at because they think it's almost too easy that yeah. they need, they can't possibly make a living or their life around right. that. When really, that's what they should do because it'll increase their quality of life. So, how do you feel about your body now? Well, it's going
1: through some medical challenges, and even with that, I I love it. And actually, it's very funny. Something to be honest, the the medical challenges are really within my you know abdomen level. And I look at myself in the mirror. I'm how old am I? Am 58 yet? I'll be 58 in September. I looked at myself in the mirror. I'm like, dang, I look pregnant again. <laughs> okay, right? Because that flat stomach thing was probably the hardest thing. I never had a flat stomach before, mm-hmm. during or after my anorexia. And it was probably the hardest thing. But I mostly am appreciative of what I have. I mean, I'm in decent shape because I like to exercise. And I do, mm-hmm. I do yoga. And I run. And I bike. And I move because it keeps me sane or saner. But Mm -hmm. I, again, I am not, I'll come from the positive. I love and appreciate my body. We're having a little conversation inside these days about, okay, I hear you. Okay, I hear you. Don't have to break anymore. I got it. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, yeah, I am lucky to not be challenged with this, my, again, my older child, my older child ran track in high mm-hmm. school and in college, and there's nothing like watching some, you know, long distance runners and some college athletes when they just pound in the food mm-hmm. and build up their bodies, and there are all these different sorts of bodies, and you're like, yeah, the body is gorgeous however it looks, wow, mm-hmm. right, so, mm-hmm. so mostly, mostly body image is, is not a, it's not a challenge, and I am eternally thankful for that.
0: Mm -hmm. And what what advice would you share with anyone going through thoughts that you consider anorexic leaning or or rigid leaning? Is there something that you could offer from your own growth and, and, you know, the shift that you've been able to live that would, you know, maybe open a little bit of room inside someone who is starting to feel a little rigid or shut down or too organized about their consumption yeah
1: i would say the first thing to do is go someplace safe for help and there are counselors who know what they're talking about there are support groups you are not alone and when you walk in a room and someone says blue and you mean blue and like you know that they know what you mean it is Mm -hmm. a safe place to heal and grow and i would not be where i am without support groups and support Mm -hmm. And the second I would say is, uh, I talk about this a lot for myself personally and in in the work I do, but those are lies in your head, lies you've been given. You know, I can point it to the cult, but I can also point it like anything around body issues is such systemic societal lies, Mm -hmm. right? And so sometimes when you can see that and call it out, it can help you separate from it and not not have to follow it and believe it. Mm -hmm. Third thing I would say is love yourself love yourself first, love yourself most, love yourself always, find ways to take care of yourself, put your hand on your heart, find ways to really calm and soothe your body and your being and your soul because you are gorgeous no matter what the lies in your head are saying, right? And so find find ways to begin to give that to yourself because I do believe that most of our challenges are about self-criticism and self you know, lambasting mm-hmm. and meanness. And most of our healing is about self-love. And the fourth thing I would say, and I say this all the time, there is hope. There is hope and you are not damaged, right? I I, I thought I was damaged so much that my, my older child read the book when it was a manuscript and then reread it recently and they're annotating it all over the place and they call me to talk it through. And they get to the part where I talk about meeting their dad for the first time and they say, what is this? Because I wrote something like, I'm sure that I'm, you know, difficult to be around because of everything that happened to me and how it affected me and, you know, uh, the scars I have and the ways, you know, the ways I messed up or, you know, it must be really a challenge for him. And my kid is like, what the blank is that? And all I could think of was like, wow, that wasn't that long ago that I wrote it and I still thought mm-hmm. that there was something wrong with me. And that is not true. You are not damaged. There is hope. There is a way out. There is, there is a way out. And so, yeah, let me say that again. There is hope. There is a way out and find somebody safe to talk to.
0: Lisa, where can people find you? Where is the best place for anyone to connect with you?
1: The best place at this point to connect with me is if you can spell my name, because Cone is with a K. So my name is Lisa Cone, L-I-S-A-K-O-H-N. And then if you add on to that, writes W-R-I-T-E-S. So Lisa Cone writes. All my social media for the book and the writing is at Lisa Writes, and my website is com. And I would love to hear from anyone. I would always love to hear from anyone about their journey and where they're going and what they're looking for as well.
0: Great. Thank you so much for being my guest. I'm really, really happy we got to do this.
1: Ah, oh, Thank you so much, Renita. I'm so glad we finally did it. Thank you for your patience. I've been a little hard to schedule, people. Um, but thank you I'm so glad we did this and I'm so glad for what you're doing it's such an important thing for people to be talking about especially now
0: thank you for tuning in to The Body Myth if you'd like updates want to complete the Your Body in the World survey or have a body image anecdote you'd like me to read on air please visit the link in the show notes or find the link in my Instagram profile at Ronit Plank that's R-O-N-I-T p l a n k you can also follow me on twitter facebook and tiktok and if you like this episode please subscribe and share it with your friends and if you have two more seconds you can rate and review it on apple podcasts so that others can more easily find the body myth thank you so much for being here